So I hope it's clear by this point that the book of Romans is about the righteousness of God that comes to human beings through the gospel. I hope that's been absolutely clear that it's been this repeated mantra that you've been hearing. The righteousness of God comes to human beings, men and women and children, through the gospel. That's how the righteousness of God comes. And the good news of this book is that the righteousness that God requires is the righteousness that He alone gives. This is how the righteousness comes. It comes through the Gospel to human beings, and it is a righteousness that is required and needed for each man and woman to stand before a holy God, and it is only something that He can give. Or as Romans 1.17 says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God comes to human beings not on the basis of what you do, of what you can conjure up, but on the basis of faith in what God has promised to do. That is why righteousness is based upon faith. When that reality is really understood, that righteousness comes by faith. When that reality is understood, it changes everything. It changes everything. It's, it's power, it is a powerful in ways that are just absolutely life-changing. It changes how you see God. It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you view sin, your own and others. It changes how you view obedience and your call to be obedient. It changes God's commands and how you even view God's commands. It changes how you view blessings and suffering and even eternity. But it also changes, or it should change, how you see others. The Gospel is a lens through which we see the world. We have been given new spectacles to see the world. To see every relationship that we have. To see how we look at disasters and what is going on in our world. The Gospel is our new lens by which we see everything. So we're in, this middle, this middle, in the middle of this section that is quite heavy in our study of Romans. From chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's main focus is to show us a problem. And in fact, it's not just a problem, it is the problem that necessitates the coming of the Gospel. And he wants us to see the bad news so clearly, so vividly, that we can understand and believe the good news. Paul's aim is not to just convince us of our imperfection. Rather, his purpose is to show us our utter hopelessness. Our inability to save ourselves to bring about change. He wants us to feel the very weight of our brokenness personally and for humanity. I don't know if you've felt it. For the past few weeks, there is a, utter, a feeling of utter hopelessness when it comes to sin and our condition. Paul is leading us toward a conclusion that can be found in Romans 3.23. If you have your Bible open, I encourage you, look at it. He's leading us towards this conclusion in 3.23. And maybe you have felt it. For all have, we've, many of us have this memorized, right? 
for all of sin. And some of us even use this as an excuse, right? <laughs> We've all sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. We'll define that later on as we get around to it. As a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. You must keep this in mind as we wade through these dark texts six weeks about sin. It all leads up to this thought. Paul is building his argument verse by verse, section by section, line by line, and he is showing us various angles on the brokenness of humanity. So the question I have as we've been, you know, been walking through this broken section, looking at the brokenness of humanity, the question is, if you were here or if you listen on the podcast, my question for you is, what did you hear last week? What did you hear last week? Last week was particularly heavy as we talked about the problem under the problem of humanity. And the problem under the problem of humanity is the exchange of God's glory for our glory. And we specifically saw the way that this tragic exchange of God's glory for our glory is manifested in 21 sins that are listed out. Especially in regards to sexuality. But especially in light of homosexuality. We learn that our broken exchange extends so deeply into our very core that it affects our most intimate desires and our most effect, uh, affections, our affections and our, our actions. It, it affects everything way down deep. So I hope that last week I was able to help you understand the Bible's perspective on the problem of humanity and why Paul uses homosexuality as the most vivid example of the exchange of God's glory for our own. But here's the reality. Paul knows churches. He's a church planter, right? He knows churches. He knows people. And he knows religious people. And he knows that there there needs to be an important balance between calling out certain behaviors and a judgmental spirit. You see, there's a danger of not speaking into the kind of issues that we talked about last week. In fact, I've had conversations with other pastors, and honestly, there's many churches that avoid this topic totally. They avoid it because it is, it's going to affect how they might be able to minister to someone with same-sex attraction or people who are struggling with this sin or that sin. So they, in general, they, if, if it happens to come up, they'll give a brief definition, but they'll move on. But there's a, there's a problem when we do that because we want to be clear about the Gospel. We want to be clear about sin. And we want to be clear that there is a message of hope and reconciliation found only in Jesus Christ. But there is also, friends, a danger that some would walk away from texts like this that we talked about last week and think it's about time that someone talked about those people. 
It's about time the church talked about homosexuality. It's about time. Have you seen our culture? Have you seen this problem? There's a danger in getting so specific and so direct that people who consider themselves to be religious might think that they're better than others or or feel as though this passage has nothing to say about them whatsoever. But I I tried hard last, last week to not allow you to fall in those pitfalls but I still want you to ask yourself, what did I hear last week? Was Romans 1, 24-32 about others? Or was it really about you? Did you walk away thinking about your own brokenness? Or were you just really glad that the sins of those people were called out finally? Our text today is designed to balance out those direct statements about a a pagan, lost, broken culture with equally direct warnings to those who are religious. So be ready. It's likely that Paul was particularly directing his, his thoughts and his pastoral insights on a Jewish audience. But the application extends to anyone who would be tempted to justify himself or herself by religious pedigree or religious activity, religious affiliation, or attendance. Paul does not want religious people to miss this very important warning. The exchange of God's glory has many different manifestations, even religious ones religious people have the same propensity to exchange the glory of God for their own glory hear that we are equally vulnerable to exchange the glory of God for our own much like the pagan world outside so Romans 2, 1-11 through 11, extends the focus uh, of God's judgment from pagan and worldly sins to what might be considered religious sins. We've previously seen the, the consequences of unbelief in verses uh, chapter 1, 18-23. We've seen the effects of, of exchanging God's glory for in chapter 1, 24 to 32. And now we see seven warnings to people who are religious. I got seven because, you know, seven's a holy number. It's a number of perfection. So I'm really good that way. But there's seven things going on here. Paul wants the immoral person and the moral person, the Jew and the Gentile, to understand the extent of their mutual depravity. He wants them both to see it. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the point here. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of you just on your way here nailed that, right? As you you woke up and you saw your spouse or you saw your kids or you saw somebody run through the red light, they cut you off or just your whole attitude. Immediately, you have 
You, you've nailed Romans uh, 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Got it. I nailed it. So, this morning, let's, let's look at this, this hypocrisy that happens, right? The first thing that you can notice is this. Friends, hypocrisy is noted by God. He, it, it's seen by Him. Verse 1 changes the focus from the wrath of God being re- revealed against immorality to the wrath of God being revealed against hypocrisy. Some, some bring the judgment of God upon themselves because of their just blatant disregard for God's laws. Others bring God's judgment because of private rebellion. That's often sanitized, right? We like to sanitize our sins somehow. And Paul's point here is this. God sees the high-handed sinner and the hypocritical sinner. There's nothing that can be hidden from his sight. The word therefore that begins our section serves as a connecting word to our, our last section. And we've seen what happens when God's truth is suppressed. Human beings exchange the truth for a, a lie. We exchange the truth of God for a lie resulting in all kinds of manners of, of, of sinful behavior. But there's another kind of truth suppression that goes on here. A whole other kind. Religious or moral people can suppress the truth about themselves. They can be judgmental of others while being just as guilty. This is why Paul says in Romans 2, verse 1, he says, you have no excuse, O man. He's fighting against the tendency of your heart and my heart to believe that we are the exception to the rule. We like that, right? I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. I'm now the exception, and I can now pass judgment because I've been saved by grace. We, we tend to want, to want the benefit of the doubt more than we, want, we will give it to others, right? We, we find that our explanations for our actions are more compelling than their, their explanations. Listen, I've got more of a reason. We, we view our sins and our, our imperfections as much less consequential than the sins of others. We are often outraged by the sins of others, but we excuse them in ourselves. Anybody guilty? I only see like three hands. You're all guilty! <laughs> right? Uh, after reading... At first reading, you, you might take kind of a, a dim view of, of judging. Uh, as if we are to never uh, define the morality of things or call people to change, right? That's kind of our culture. Who are you to judge, right? We kind of get that. I hear that a lot. I'll have a conversation about somebody about Christianity and, and they'll go, well, who are you to judge? Almost as if, you know, you're imperfect, so you have no place. And you've often heard people even uh, use Matthew 7, verse 1, where they say, judge not, 
yeah, they even put the lest in there. You know, King James proper, right? <laughs> judge not lest you be judged. You probably heard it a lot. I've heard it a lot. But the Bible does call us to judge. L- listen, if you want examples, look at, look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. Philippians 3, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. 1 John 4, 11. If that's too quick, it's going to be online tomorrow. And you can see it in the notes. God does call us to judge. We are commanded to make accurate and clear appraisals of character based on conduct. We are. We are called to judge. That kind of judgment is absolutely necessary and helpful. In fact, that's part of the role of elders within the church is, is to make these judgments and make some clear appraisals based on the character and activity that is going on. We are called to judge. But what Paul is identifying here is a hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of another person. That, do not judge lest you be judged. The key of understanding verse 1 is the second half of verse 1. Judgment is not necessarily wrong unless it is tainted with hypocrisy. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's nailing hypocrisy. In other words, the dark content of the last section in Romans that we just got through ought to make everyone humbled before God. Trusting in your own friends, trusting in your own religious background or your, your conservative values or whatever you, you've struggled with, or, uh, this or that, does not make you immune to God's judgment. I don't care how many years, if you were born and baptized in a church, if you are the most conservative politically of all people or theologically conservative, that does not make you immune from God's judgment. God knows you better than you know yourself. Which is uh, a strangely comforting thing and an absolutely scary thing, right? Right? And that's a paradox that we live in, is that he knows me better than I know myself. Thank God. Oh, my word. (laughs) Right? And Paul wants us to dismantle this thought that can easily follow such a hard-hitting text with the idea that, he wants to hit the idea that when we say, I'm glad I'm not like that. God sees our hypocrisy. And it is a problem. But it goes on in verses 2 and 3 by seeing that God really is just. The first issue relates to not understanding ourselves very well. right? That's kind of where hypocrisy comes from. We, we, we are missing a really good insight into ourselves and the honesty that is required, understanding our depravity. And the second warning relates to not understanding who God is. The distortion of our thinking not only results in thinking that we are the exception to the rule, but it also manifests itself in thinking that God will ultimately treat us differently. 
This, is especially, this was especially true for the Jewish people because they viewed themselves as God's chosen people, the apple of His eye, and that they were, they were even given the special gift of the law. And they, they, they prized their unique morality, but it caused them to make assumptions about God's justice. Therefore, Paul totally shatters the issue by using their own understanding of God's character against them. Verse 2 is something with which we would all agree. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those people who practice those things. We can almost hear the amens, right? That's right! Nail them, Paul! God's judgment falls on those people! But Paul uses a very strong kind of personal warning when he says, but you, O man... Do you suppose, O man, you who judge and practice such things, yet you do them yourselves, that you are going to escape the judgment of God? You see, there's a tendency to kind of force a kind of a rank on sin, isn't there? We got different levels of sin such that we feel better than ourselves. (sighs) At least I don't do that. At least I'm not that. Now, while it's absolutely, hear this, while it's absolutely true that there are some sins that have greater consequences, right? There are sins that have greater consequences just because of the very nature of sin. It is absolutely inexcusable, inexcusable to think that you are not culpable of God's judgment for your sins. I just took a paper clip. It's just a paper clip. It was just one little white lie, or I just spread a little bit of gossip. It didn't hurt anybody. But do you know what they did? In other words, the darkness of the previous section should affect us all. The, a list of sins and a focus on sexual sin can quickly create a sense of pride, right? A self-justifying heart in those who are really moral and religious. And Paul gives a strong, very strong warning here about thinking that God is not going to be equally just. Equally just with you as He is with those people. Be warned, friends. God is just. It is in His very nature To be just. That is who God is. And we should be thankful for that. But then, let's move on to the next thing. And this is kind of where it kind of gets a little uh, dicey. Not dicey for me. Where I have to do a little bit of thinking because Paul does a little bit of uh, literary, uses some literary devices in here to get across his next point. So, the third warning here relates to a misinterpretation of the blessings of God. Paul is connecting this to the blessing of God on the Jewish people, but there are applications beyond the nation of Israel. Paul is giving two parallel uh, rhetorical questions. We know what rhetorical questions are, right? They're questions that don't really necessarily... Uh, require a response? You know how tall you are, right? 
do you want me to answer that? And the answer is no. It's, it's meant to just ask a question to get a point across. So we ask two parallel questions. Question number one, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? That's question number one. That does not demand an answer, but it demands you to think. And question number two is, do you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So for question number one, because the Jewish and religious people were hypocritically judgmental of other peoples, they were treating God's kindness in not judging them very lightly or even with contempt. In other words, God has not been kind to you because you are innocent. Question number two, do you don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Some people misinterpret God's blessings as, as a sign of God's approval, as if God's gifts were deserved, right? I've received these gifts from God, and it's a sign of God's approval, and uh, that's a huge blessing for me. And I deserve those blessings because I'm in Christ. We've already heard a variation of this in chapter 1, verse 21, where it says that the people did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But in this context, we see a religious expression of that ingratitude. Rather than willingly forgetting God, the religious person comes to believe that he or she deserves the blessings which God gives. Paul reinterprets the kindness of God. In Romans, uh, Romans 1.24, and his point is, is very important. God is not kind in not immediately judging you. Or ju God is kind in not immediately judging you. And He is also kind, God is also kind in granting blessings upon people. Especially the Jews. But what are we to make of these blessings that God gives us that are undeserved? According to Paul, they should never be interpreted as if we deserved them or as if they were due to our faithfulness. God's gift has not, gifts have nothing to do with your faithfulness or your deserving them. In fact, all the blessings that come from God are completely undeserved. Completely. That's why they are a gift. Gifts of grace. And Matthew uh, 5.45 makes it clear, very clear, that God is even kind to unkind people. Right? God is even kind to the un. Unkind, uh, undeserving people. You see in Romans or Matthew 5.45 that He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good. Right? And He even sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's, that's God's kindness. On, no one deserves it. In the book of Matthew, this was done to motivate the people of God to be kind to the people who treat them poorly. Listen, if, if God does this on the just and unjust, the kind and unkind, the, the evil and the good, 
How then do you treat them with kindness? But in Romans, Paul says that God treats people kindly in order to do what? To lead them to repentance. This is the message in the good things that we received from God. That we receive, these things that we receive are designed to turn people toward God in humble recognition of their ongoing needs. So religious people cannot, we cannot scoff at the pagan who uh, refuses to be thankful and acknowledge God. We can't scoff at them and say, you've got to be kidding. When, when we are guilty of assuming that God's blessings are deserved blessings. Religious people are often thankful, but often for the wrong reasons. For instance, think about the, uh, the combination of, of uh, gratitude and pride in the Pharisee's prayer that you see in Luke 18. Listen to his prayer. I want to thank you that I am not like other men. Thank you that I'm not like other men. Other men, extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, and even, even like the tax collector. He thanked God and he was proud. That's awful. The warning here is to be sure that you do not equate God's blessings with his approval. Everything we have is an undeserved gift. So that's a warning. The fourth warning, and i got to get moving here. The truth resisted hardens hearts this is key for all of us (laughs) truth resisted ultimately does what it creates a a hardened heart a calloused heart the fourth warning identifies the problem of the misinterpretations of blessing the believers have a heart problem in particular they they have a hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart the idea of a hard heart would have been very familiar to the jews that Paul was addressing. The Old Testament used this kind of idea for lack of obedience and even connecting it to the symbolic act of circumcision, which I will deal with extensively later on. Not today. But in Jeremiah 4, verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your your heart. O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fire go forth my wrath goes forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Circumcise your heart. This idea will be raised again, but in this section, it is simply the point that when religious people resist truth, the truth of God as found in Scripture, it creates a hardening of hearts. And it doesn't happen just overnight, right? It happens repeatedly, like a good callus. Drew, you probably got calluses, right? Aaron's got more. And, and it's because, Aaron, you're, you're on the, the, the bar and you're doing all these activities. And, but she didn't have it the first time. You had really soft preacher hands. Really soft, you know. My calluses are on the tips of my fingers. Uh, a callus is not immediately over 
immediately received. It is over time. And that's the same thing that happens with a, a hardened heart. It takes time. We start getting used to thoughts and feelings and attitudes. And somehow, and we even in that, we justify, right? We justify. Here's the deal. Remember Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Lest a religious person think that he or she can be spared, Paul talks about the final day when God's wrath will be revealed. And the problem for the moralist today may be that his wild and fleshly sins are not his wild and fleshly sins, but his hardened heart. His hardened heart that leads him to hypocrisy or a multitude of other religious sins or justifiable sins. Robert Mount summarizes it easily, really great in, this, uh, in his commentary. He says this, the person who knows, the person who knows but resists truth does not go away from the encounter morally neutral. Truth resisted hardens the heart. It makes it all the more difficult to recognize truth the next time around. Life is not a game without consequences. Do not resist the truth of God. It leads to a hard and impenitent, unrepentant heart that ultimately, after time, even for a religious person, does not even recognize God. That is scary. Number five, actions do matter. Verse six. Here it's a new paragraph that kind of runs all the way through verse 11. While... Most of the, the work that's found in Romans is about faith. Um, this section, or a good religious word, or theologians, theologians' word is pericope. This section, there's a new word for you, right? Um, is about our actions. Keep in mind that the target of Paul's concern is people who are hypocritically judging other people. And Paul wants them to know that their actions... Actions really do matter. God is going to render to each according to what? His works. God's going to render His judgment according to your works. So this is listed here almost as a principle in verse 7 through 11. Unpack it further. So here's one thing that you have got to remember. Throughout the scriptures, there is a clear sense that while people are not saved by their works, you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace through faith, right? That's not, so that's, we're not saved by works, but we are most certainly judged by our works. There's a divine accountability for things that human beings do. You are accountable for your actions or your lack of actions. Actions really do matter to God. God doesn't go, hey, I've saved you by grace. Welcome. It doesn't matter what you do right now. You have a free skating ride here. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just keep on living. 
Salvation is not based upon works, but judgment and guilt certainly are based upon works. Sinful Jews are, are, not, are, are not going to be treated any differently than the Gentiles at the judgment. They will not be able to appeal to their heritage, their church membership, their activity, their observance of the law, or their special place in God's heart. They will not be able to appeal to that. They will be judged according to their works, just like everyone else. And this is a really important point for us who feel a privilege of growing up in a Christian home. Or growing up attending a church much of our lives. Or, or if you have a significant exposure to spiritual truth and gone on to seminary or, or got your degree in theology. The warning here is simply that your background, your religious knowledge, and your family roots will not excuse you from your accountability before God. Our actions really do matter. Friends, even, even eternity... And, the sixth warning is eternity is connected to our present lives. Think about it. Eternity is connected. In this, in this section here, verses 7 through 10, Paul kind of gives a, an explanation that, listen, you, you live by faith, but there's this what do we do with our works? The point of this section here is that there is a connection between what a person seeks and what a person does. And ultimately, their eternal destiny. Those who are headed for everlasting glory, seeking after God, are seeking the right things. And those who, are, who practice evil are setting a course towards tribulation and distress. In other words, there's a connection between our present lives and our ultimate eternity. Is Paul saying that we're saved by works? No! The rest of the book of Romans will make that abundantly clear. That a person is saved by faith. However, that does not mean that good works are not validating validating part, the validating part of genuine faith. Your good works are like credentials. It's the validation. It's the key to say, yes, there is something truly happening in you, your life. You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. This is a beautiful thing. Now your life not only, not, not only has something happened internally, but something is happening externally you, there's a desire to be obedient there's a desire to be saying i want to put to death this mortal flesh this life that i live that has been lived unto myself and i want to put that to death so that i may come alive in christ that is what i want i think saint augustine or augustine however you want to say it said it best when he said faith alone saves but the kind of faith that saves is not alone it's not alone last week i read 
part of a very important text in 1 Corinthians 6. And I said, I, I would love that for this to kind of be our mantra. Uh, and it shows this connection between works and, and true conversion. And it was this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not deceive neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor uh, idolaters or adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, sexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The warning is very clear. A life, a changed life, is a part of a genuine faith. And I would even say a changing life. An ongoing changing life is part of a genuine faith. If you are not changing from one degree of glory, becoming more and more like Christ in your present life, something is wrong. Something is missing. Paul wanted to wanted the religious Jews to know that genuine faith being demonstrated in good works, not your history, not your family, not your tradition, is really what matters before you stand before God. This is what matters. And ultimately it comes down to verse 11, which is the scariest thing of all. God is not impartial. A person's Jewishness or your religious morality will not excuse you from God's judgment. A person may feel spiritually superior because his sin list is not as long or is not as colorful as theirs. But sin is sin when it comes before God. Period. God is not impartial. It's sobering, isn't it? God will not be persuaded by our amazing excuses and explanations and justifications and compensation or even threats he knows us better than we know ourselves and His judgment on of the unrighteous will be the kind of judgment that we will have never seen before. And He will bless those who have put their faith in Him and whose lives have been changed by the power of the Gospel. And He will judge those who, will, who depend upon their own efforts and who have expressed their unbelief through sinful action. So if you are the kind of person who thinks you are going to get away with sinful actions, I promise you, I promise you, there's no partiality with God. Zero. And if you think that you will be able to justify yourself through an explanation of your past and your story, your religious activities or your spiritual heritage, friends, there's no partiality with God. God has not given you what you deserve. We do not deserve any of the blessings He has given us. And He has stayed His hand in the final judgment for a while. But do not make this mistake of thinking that judgment is not going to happen. Again, there is no partiality with God. So where does that lead us? There's got to be a final challenge, right? It, it leads us... If you understand, when you understand the message of Romans 2 in light of the previous text, there are two words for me that come to the forefront. One is humility, and the second is holiness. 
Both words flow right out from our understanding of the gospel. And if you come to embrace the fact that you are broken so deeply and so profoundly in your very being, in every nook and cranny, and you turn to Jesus and receive His righteousness by faith, you will understand humility and holiness. You will. You will be humble because you know God has responded by rescuing you from yourself and Him and ultimately from His wrath. You, you understand the Gospel and you realize more and more each passing day how hopeless you were apart from Christ. You, you hear the sins like last week and you, you become very cognizant of your own sins, right? It, it, it kind of hits you right here in the forefront of your mind and your heart. And what's more, you see that every blessing that you have received from God is a gift that you did not deserve. And you will see that God's kindness is absolutely everywhere. Everywhere. And because everything that you have is a gift from Him, it changes the way that you respond. You see, the more you understand your depravity and God's grace coupled together, the more you are amazed you should even be able to receive God's kindness in the first place. God, I do another gift? No, hold back. I do not deserve this. Do you know what a wretched man, Paul, Apostle Paul, what a wretched man I am, chief of sinners, Paul, he, the more he becomes aware of the gospel, the more humble he gets. But not only humility, it moves us on to holiness. You will know that you are not justified by your works. You've been justified by the righteousness of Christ. God gave you the righteousness that He requires, but you will know that you are now a different person. You are not perfect, but you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You, you are and do see life differently. And there is a new power within you to say no to sin. No! No to sin. And yes to what is right. There's a new power within you. It means that you have new desires. And sometimes they are strange desires because they are otherworldly. You have new desires that only come from God. And it means that you long to be more righteous today than you were yesterday. Holiness, friends, is a longing in your soul. An attraction that only God can create. So God's kindness was not, has not led to judgment or the justification of your, your sin. Romans 2, friends, is a helpful chapter because it warns religious people like ourselves that true faith will produce huge quantities of humility. A huge desire for holiness. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And isn't that a wonderful lead-in to what we're going to be participating in? You know, he says, 
listen, I, I have given you the gift of life. An abundant type of life. One that is just overflowing. You can't, you can't contain it. It's an abundant life. But there's also the warnings that we receive in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that says you need to examine yourself because uh, there, there should be a deep desire here for holiness and to, to be humble before God as you recognize your sinful nature still that is living with inside you that is just constantly poking at you and calling you and luring you and enticing you in areas where you have even fallen. Fallen prey to the lies of the devil. And having just talked about the hardness of our heart, we, we need to confess, God, I recognize that there is a hardness of my heart. I'm, I'm impenitent. I'm unrepentant. Lord, today, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would release me to give me the strength to say no and the strength to live more faithfully after you. But if you refuse, friends, if you refuse to be changed, I want to warn you about receiving the Lord's Supper. It's a strong warning that this meal is for those who believe by faith in Christ. This meal is for those who desire to be changed and are willing to leave, lead a repentant life. If that is you, this table is open. For those who are in Christ, leading repentant lives, full of humility, desiring holiness. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, friends, he, he took bread. And after he had broken it and given thanks, he said, this is my body that is broken for you. <laughs> There's some gravity there. Broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup of blessing and in pouring it out, he said, this is my blood in the new covenant, which is poured out for you. Poured out for you. Undeserved. Gift of grace. Do this in remembrance of me. So friends, as we come to this table, come with joy, come with peace, come with satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. But friends, I also want to assure you, and I want you to hear this clearly from Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger of the sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through Him who has loved us. For I am sure that neither life, death, nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, that's good news. And you should be giving me some roaring amens right there. This is good news. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So friends, may the peace of Christ be with you. Really? Do you believe it? If it's true, friends, pass the peace of Christ to one another 
and come. Come. All those who are in Christ, come, for all things are ready.